0: Welcome to God is Open. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about systematic theology, the systematic study of the nature and character of God. The first thing we're going to do, though, is touch a little bit about uh, systematic anthropology, the character and nature of mankind, just just so we could get a little bit of introduction to how systematic theology works. We're going to do, we're doing the same systematic theology principles and applying to them the study of man. First thing we need to understand is that uh, man's attributes are identical to God's. You understand this because God is pure simplicity, he's pure actuality, he's timeless and eternal. And since he's pure simplicity, all his attributes are identical to each other. And because the world and creation is part of God's essence, who he is, he interacts with the world, the knowledge of the world is identical to him and identical to all his other attributes, you understand that mankind shares God's attributes. Mankind is co-eternal with God in God's mind, eternally existing in the everlasting now. And this is a concept you can't deny if you know anything about systematic theology, because God is pure simplicity. He can't be other than what he is he's pure actuality there's no potential to be other than what he is and since the world is a creation of God it also has to share in this pure actuality so mankind is omniscient and we know this from the Bible that mankind shares the same extent of omniscience that God has you turn to 2nd Samuel 14:20, and this is about a man and he is said to know all things that are on the earth Remember, just like God knows all things that are on the earth, mankind also knows all things on the earth. We might think of man as a limited being who could only get the, the just the basic extent of their world and maybe some information fed to them, but that's not true. Read this verse. He says that uh, you have the wisdom of the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Second Samuel 14.20 In Ecclesiastes 1.14, this, this the concept is reiterated. This man has seen all the works that are under the sun. Think about that. All the works under the sun is known by this person. That means out in the middle of the most remote island, to the bottom of the ocean, to the highest planetary bodies. All of this is known by the speaker. He has seen all the works that are done under the sun. And that doesn't mean the sun's excluded. This is hyperbolic. This is uh, metaphorical. This just gives us a picture in our mind that he just knows everything, omniscient. And of course, just like the phrases that when this type of language is applied to God, it means everything past, present, and future. He shares in the type of omniscience that God has. Ezekiel 28.3, there's no secret that be hidden from you. This is a man as well. Just like God knows our hearts, he's tested the hearts and known the hearts, mankind shares in this attribute. Every single man on earth, can share in the secrets of their heart. They, they know what's in the hearts of other people. There's no secret that can be hidden from mankind. You, you might stop and pause and say, how can this be? Man is a limited creature. But you're not looking at it with the correct eyes. You're not looking at it through spiritual eyes. You're not understanding man's true essence and characteristic. You're reading the Bible with an anthropomorphic lens that doesn't give the true picture of what a deeper spiritual understanding of the text would give you. Daniel 1.4, there's youths, and youths are usually understood as uh, not, not quite developed. They might uh, misunderstand things. But in Daniel 1.4, even the youth is said to be skillful in all wisdom. These are children, and they have all wisdom. And uh, if you look just, just further, Daniel 1.17, they have skill in all literature and wisdom. So they know everything. All wisdom is theirs. John 14.26, It says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Remember how man's omniscience derives from co-eternity with God and co-simplicity with God. This verse is explaining this concept in man-centered language, whereas mankind derives our omniscience from God. 1 John 2.20, but you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit and you know all things. Remember, because we are identified with God, because we're pure simplicity with God, we also know all things. This is the same knowing all things, pontos, that you see in 1 John 3.20, which is often used for God's omniscience, of all events, past, present, and future. So mankind shares in God's omniscience. This is not the only attribute that mankind shares in common with God. There's omnipotence. God says this. God's talking about man. He says nothing they propose to do will will be withheld from them. Mankind has complete omnipotence and micromanagement sovereignty. Nothing can oppose them. They have no equals that can stop them from doing what they want. This is God talking. They share. Man shares in God's sovereignty, omnipotence, immutability. Psalms 15:4. Mankind does not change. Psalms 55.19 says they do not change. Mankind is pure simplicity, pure actuality. They don't have potential to change. They are immutable and co-eternal with God, per our biblical references. They're timeless as well. Psalms 37.29, the righteous shall inherit the land and inhabit eternity. The same phrase that's used for God, inhabiting eternity, Mankind is co-eternal, co-timeless with God, per the Bible. You just have to do systematic theology, you have to do systematic anthropology, understand the concepts, understand who God is, and how the metaphysics works, and it all works together. It all fits our systematic theology. Now is that, is that very rational? Is, is that pretty good systematic theology? Believe it or not, that's how basically every single systematic theology text is written. We're gonna be examining a couple of them. Let's uh, examine Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology. I asked an entire Calvinist webpage what the best systematic theologies were, and it's Herman Bovnik and Louis Burkhoff. Those are the two top systematic theologies, and I have others, and they're all structured in the same way. So going to Louis Burkhoff, let's take a look at the immutability of God. I'm gonna read this whole paragraph, and let's digest this paragraph. The immutability of God is a necessary commitment of his acity. It is that perfection of God by which he is devoid of all change, not only in his being, but also in his perfections, and in his purpose and promises. In virtue of this attribute, he is exalted above all becoming and is free from all ascension or diminution, and from all growth or decay in his being or perfections. His knowledge and his plans, his moral principles and volitions remain forever the same. And Let's listen to this phrase. Even reason teaches us that no change is possible in God. Since a change is either for the better or the worse, but in God, as the absolute perfection, improvement and deterioration are both equally impossible. What about a lateral change? He doesn't address that. He just assumes that away. But you'll find this phrase scattered throughout systematic theologies, scattered throughout anti-open theist texts as a response to open theism, that God cannot change because a change has to be either for the better or the worse. The first place we see this in history, this argument, is literally in Plato's The Republic where he's talking about this perfect perfection in God where God cannot change. This is literally Platonism that they're arguing. And he argues this before he talks about any scriptural proofs. And he does exactly what I just did with our systematic anthropology. Except for I won better him, I actually read the text that I'm quoting. And a lot of these systematic theologies, what they'll do is they'll go through this big thing about, uh, they'll have these long paragraphs about their ideas of immutability and changelessness and per- pure perfection and omniscience. And then they'll just, they'll just slap on some proof texts. They don't go over the proof text. They don't quote the proof text. They don't uh, even reference what's written in there. And there's no contextual analysis. And so just like what we did with the systematic anthropology, it's brutalizing the text. His first quote, of course, is Exodus 3.14, and we have a whole podcast on that. That's where God says, I am who I am. And in context, that is a reference to God being a personal, relational God of Israel and freeing them from captivity. In that text, God's plans are subverted. God wants Moses to be his mouthpiece, and Moses keeps throwing up objection after objection God becomes angry, he becomes fed up, and finally replaces Moses as his mouthpiece with Aaron. This is, this is what the, the literal context of his proof text for immutability is God changing, becoming angry and changing based on resistance to his plans. God's plans being thwarted. Well, another text that we see a lot, Malachi 3.6. And in context, the very next verse says, return to me, then I'll return to you. The context is change. Malachi 3.6 says, I'm the Lord, therefore I do not change, therefore you are not destroyed. Well, what's that argument? What argument is being made by the author in that context? Is he arguing for this pure simplicity that cannot change because change is better for the worst and uh, God has to be forever the same? Is that what's going on in Malachi 3.6? He doesn't prove it. What the systematic theology does and consistently throughout systematic theologies is they just want to talk about their philosophy, and there's, there's only this brief reference to the Bible. The Bible's secondary to their uh, theology, and their Bible is just there to proof text, to give some sort of idea that there are biblical references, but when we turn to those references, they have nothing at all to do with that systematic theology. This is bad theology. This is bad scholarship. These little references these little allusions to these different biblical verses tricks the reader into thinking that this is actual biblical theology being taught but the 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 nuance of the ideas being presented are not apparent in the proof texts remember so this is about god is free from all ascension or diminution from all growth and decay in his being or perfections his knowledge his plans his moral principles and volitions Nothing of that can change. He's uh, absolute immutability. He can't change in his essence. And let's look at Psalm 102, 26 through 28, and it's hyperlinked, so, th- so at least there's hyperlinks. It says, they shall perish, man shall perish, but thou shall endear. Yea, all of them shall wax like old garment, as a vesture shall not change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and Thy years have no end. So what's this about? We don't even have to turn to Psalms 102, and we could probably already guess the context of what this means. Man is weak. Man is not as powerful as God. Man decays and dies, whereas God is everlasting, living forever. So is this about uh, thou art the same, and thy years have no end, and that God doesn't grow old? Is this this about uh, pure immutability, where God can't change in any perfections or anything like that? Has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with that. What this is about is God doesn't grow old and weak and weary. That's what this proof text is about. Yet it's just lumped in, and uh, with all these other proof texts about this weird Platonic notion where God can't change or fluctuate in any of the smallest characteristics. Is this saying that God can't uh, learn something new? Is this saying that God can't interact with people? Is this saying that uh, god god's just just outside of time pure immutability simplicity no th- those are forced concepts they're being forced onto this so look at what he does next he he needs to deal with counterproof texts proof texts that that uh, buck against this narrative that he's presenting he he presented his philosophy All well and good, sure. He threw out his little proof text. It had nothing to do with the philosophy he just said. And now he needs to deal with texts in the Bible where God changes. And he says, At the same time, there are many passages of Scripture which seem to ascribe change to God. Did not he who dwells in eternity pass on the creation of the world, become incarnate in Christ, and in the Holy Spirit take up his abode in the church, Is he not represented as revealing and hiding himself, as coming and going, as repenting and changing his intention, and as dealing differently with man before and after conversion? And he he lifts off a couple of proof texts about those. The objection here implied is based to a certain extent on misunderstanding. Oh, we just don't understand those texts. Why, Why? Tell us why. The divine immutability should not be understood as implying immobility, as if there were no movement in God. It is customary in theology to speak of God as actus purus, the God who's always in action. The Bible teaches us that God enters into the manifold relationships with men and, as it were, lives their life with them. There is change round about him, change in the relationships of men to him, but there is no change in his being, his attributes, his purpose, his motives of action, his promises. The purposes to create was eternal with him, and there was no change in him when this purpose was realized by a single eternal act of his will. The incarnation brought no change in the being or perfections of God, nor his purpose, for it was his eternal good pleasure to send his son of his love into the world look at this mitigation strategy. So you got all sorts of texts. He didn't go over those texts. He didn't talk about the context and meaning and what those texts were trying to say either. And he's trying to dismiss them all based on, you guessed it, more philosophy. This is not a textual analysis. This this is just him spouting philosophy and saying, these are the verses we should ignore. And these are the verses that we should affirm. And by the way, The verses we ignore, we're not going to try to understand what they're actually saying. And the verses we affirm, we're not going to explore those either. We got our philosophy. Our philosophy takes precedence over anything in the Bible. And uh, any proof text that possibly can be stolen in order to affirm our philosophy, we're going to list in our references. And we're just going to ignore counter evidence. He says this, And if Scripture speaks of his repenting, changing his intention, and altering his relationship to sinners when they repent... We should remember that this is only an anthropomorphic way of speaking. (laughs) The text doesn't mean what it says. Just ignore the text. In reality, the change is not in God, but in man and in man's relationship to God. God's immutable. The change is really in man. So look at this. This this is a mechanism. This is a mechanism of, of dealing with or rationalizing away texts that don't agree with your theology. Rather than an analytical way of reading and understanding using common reading comprehension techniques. It's just saying these texts don't really mean what they say. These texts are just there describing um, something. It's not exactly what it's describing. It's kind of describing something else. We just have to read this in light of our philosophy. Our philosophy takes precedence. Anything that contradicts our philosophy, we dismiss under this mitigation strategy And uh, we'll just grab all these other verses and pretend that they agree with our philosophy. Philosophy in these systematic theologies takes precedence over and above the text. And all this philosophy that we're reading here about being pure act and pure simplicity and pure immutability... Those are not biblical concepts. They're they're not speaking about the Yahweh we find in the Bible. This is actually the same concepts that are introduced by Plato, as we've already talked about in the Republic, and Neoplatonism, which had developed further these theories and these ideas. So this is a pretty sad way to do theology, where your theology takes precedence, and no matter what the Bible says, you have rationalization schemes in order to force the Bible to fit your theology. And this is common. Let's look at Herman Bovnik doing the same thing. If God were not immutable, he would not be God. His name is being, and this name is an unalterable name. All that changes ceases to be what it was, but true being belongs to him who does not change. That which truly is remains, and that which changes which was something and will be something, but is not anything because it's mutable. But God, who is, cannot change, for every change would diminish his being. Furthermore, God is as immutable in His knowing, His willing, His decreeing, as He is in His being. That essence of God by which He is what He is possesses nothing changeable, neither in eternity nor in truthfulness nor in will. This is what they talk like. This is how they think. Is this biblical speaking? Do you, do you hear the Bible talking like this? And uh, Bob Nick does this too. He does this proof text. At least he kind of references the proof text a little bit. This is what they'll also do when they're throwing out these lists of verses. They'll take those snippets. So remember how I did that with the the systematic anthropology that I just read the snippets? That's what Bovnik does here for immutability. Everything changes, but he remains standing. This is the Psalms 102 text that we already covered. He is Yahweh, who is and ever, remain, ever remains himself. He is the first and he is the last and he is still the same God. Isaiah 41, 43, 46, 48. He is who he is, Deuteronomy 32, uh, 39, John 8:58, Hebrews 13, 8. So a lot of these verses, he, he references them, he throws them out and he, he says, these are what those, these verses are saying, but you don't find contextual analysis. You don't see him turning to those verses and saying how this point is being made in context. What is the original point? How does it work within the context? The context is saying something to someone in some fashion. How does this point add to the overall point being made in that context? Just turning to Hebrews 13.8 as an example, let's do that. We'll turn to Hebrews 13.8 as our example. This one's funny because this is uh, what I use as a counterproof text a lot to these Calvinists about immutability. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then you'll turn to places where Jesus learns things. Jesus grows in wisdom and favor with God. Jesus grew up. He was a kid and grew up and he died and rose again. These are all changes. And so Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever really tells us that this is not about pure immutability. And what they'll do is they'll have these mitigation strategies in order to just redefine what's going on in this verse. Whereas this tells us, this is not talking about these ideas of pure simplicity. Instead, it's it's speaking about who Jesus Christ is as a person, his morality, his deity. That's what Hebrews 13.8 is talking about. These people in Hebrews... we're we're rejecting jesus as a divine figure in hebrews if you read the book of hebrews it's a systematic argument of why jesus christ is important right and so it's not talking about pure immutability pure simplicity in context it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense when we look at who he was and how he developed and how he grew and everything we know about him in the bible it's not about that but they'll have these mitigation techniques they'll say oh Uh, The human part of Jesus did change, but what this Hebrews 13.8 is referencing is this divine element that is identical to God's essence and just took on this flesh with no change in itself. And that's what's happening in this verse. Do you get that from the verse? Is that what this is talking about? Is there anything in this context to suggest that's, that's what's going on? Or are they desperate? They are desperate for proof text and they're willing to grab anything no matter how non-contextual their point is being made. So if they want an accurate proof text, one that actually reinforces the point they're trying to make, not only does their little phrase have to say what they want it to say, but the context has to be about that. The context needs to reinforce that meaning. It has to be like these systematic theologies where it talks a lot about philosophy and how the philosophy works. That's what we need to see in the Bible, but we don't see that and so that's why we see when they're doing systematic theology they're taking little short vague phrases ripping them out of context not dealing with the context because the contexts are not about the principles that they're trying to lay down that they're trying to set up in their systematic theologies this is bad systematic theology it's a bad way to treat the bible it's brutalizing the text is what they're doing so they grab these little snippets and then they just paste it onto the philosophy that they already have in their own heads, and then they put it in a book, and then they call it a systematic theology, and then they sell it to the masses, and the masses consume it and say, oh, this is so intellectual and, and so, so smart. I'm learning all sorts of things from reading these systematic theology texts. It's like, really, you're reading this? What, what do you gain? What do you gain out of these systematic theologies? Are you a smarter person after reading these systematic theologies? The answer is no. You no, know, because it's it's hurting the text. And so then when you start interacting with other Christians, you say, oh, Hebrews 13.8, that's about the immutability of God. It's not. It's not. You only believe that because you're force-fed this idea about immutability, and it was really desperate for proof texts, and so just slapped on whatever whatever vague statements it could that might reinforce the point that they, they already had in their own head the nuances are never described in the Bible. Their overall points are never described in the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk like this anywhere in the Bible, and so that's why they have to do this this verse theology, this proof-texting theology, this bad theology. So what would I do? If I was to write my own systematic theology, it would be a lot different than normal systematic theologies. The normal systematic theology is set up in this this way in which the first chapter or two is all about what's come before, who said what, and what did they believe, and what context. It's written almost like a study paper, uh, a systematic study of maybe you're reading John Lott and it's on guns and crimes. They'll talk about the different studies that came before and what those studies found. And then they'll take those summaries and they'll add it into the new data that they're exploring and build more conclusions. So it's lit- written like a research paper. Systematic theologies do that. All of that's meaningless. Why, why do we care what's come before? Shouldn't we care about what the text of the Bible says? So a good systematic theology doesn't start off like a research paper. A good systematic theology teaches you how to read the Bible first of all. How do we read the Bible? What, what are common ways of reading texts and understanding context, form, the points being made in context, possible and probable meanings? Remember, if if you picked up my book, God is Open, I spend an entire chapter talking about critical thinking, putting yourself in other people's shoes, trying to understand possible and probable meanings, using context to determine meaning. It's it's about literary criticism. The first chapter is all about literary criticism because that is what's key to understanding the Bible, not the systematic theology that we impose, we force on the text, That's like raping the text. It's like we don't care what the text says, we're just gonna force this text to be whatever we want in our own mind to be. That's a textual rape. We don't wanna do that. We wanna let the text speak for itself. And the only way we could do that is reading the text with honest principles. If you don't set out those principles, if you don't talk about how to understand text in context, and don't just invent random standards that are alien to human communication like oh, because we want God to be immutable, that any time it talks about God not changing, it must reinforce our immutability, and that's how we'll read the Bible. That, that's a bad way to do that. Treat the text honestly like you would treat any other ancient text written to a similar audience. Uh, we have the entire podcast on the Enuma Elish, the language used in Enuma Elish, and how a lot of those languages and phrases are very similar to biblical passages, biblical phrases, and it's very obvious. That it's not this negative Neoplatonic philosophy. It's just not. That's just not how language works. The narratives take precedence. What God says, what God does, what God thinks. And then from there flows these generalities. These generalities are summation of the narratives. And good systematic theology prioritizes those narratives over quote-unquote didactic texts. But Christianity, because it has fallen prey to Neoplatonism, wants to prioritize what they call didactic texts, these little short phrases. They want to prioritize that, and that gets to override anything else the Bible says. Everything else the Bible says, just throw in the trash, it's all anthropomorphism, it's all just man-centered language that says not real philosophy, not theology. We got our higher theology, and uh, it works together in our head and we think it's so great and nice. And it's not. It's Neoplatonism. There's all sorts of metaphysical systems out there. Just take your pick. You don't have to settle on Neoplatonism. You don't have to, to force yourself into this mindset where you have to, you're have you arguing against Neoplatonists using their own metaphysics. You don't have to do that because there's they haven't proved that their metaphysical system is the correct system by which that we view the world. In fact, the Hebrew metaphysics, quote-unquote metaphysics, is a lot different. Man and God share realms. The spiritual and the physical overlap. Physical beings are brought into the spiritual realm. The eternal Christian and Jewish hope is a resurrection on a restored earth. It's it's a physical hope, right? It's not this Platonic ascension to the spiritual realm. Oh, we're going to get saved and go to heaven and be these spirit beings. It's literally a restoration of the earth and living forever with Jesus and God. God is sitting there on the throne with Jesus by his side reigning from a new Jerusalem. That is the Jewish hope. It doesn't sound anything like this Platonist metaphysics where there's God has these different hypostases, just like in Platonism, where there's, there's different levels of being, and those being levels of being can't interact with each other. They, they're totally separate from each other, and you have to ascend the different levels of being. Jewish theology, Jewish metaphysics did not work like that. The physical and spiritual overlapped in a way where God can descend to earth. God can walk among mankind. God can rule the world from Jerusalem. In the city, this is the new city, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So it's Jesus. And Jesus is sitting with God in this new Jerusalem. That is the idea of, of Jewish theology, Jewish eschatology. And it's totally contradictory to Neoplatonist metaphysics where there's these different hypostasises and God has to be pure actuality, pure simplicity, changeless. They're contrary, that Jews were not Neoplatonists. So back to talking about an accurate theological textbook, an actual, actual systematic theology. Deal with reading comprehension first. How do we read to understand? How we read, How do we read to critically evaluate? How do we read in order to put ourselves in the mindset of what's being said? putting our mindset in the mindset of the audience to understand what they are hearing from this text and to be able to accurately interpret the text as they would have. From there, we then look at the different texts throughout the Bible, especially texts about who God is and what God does, and from there, we draw our generalizations. So this would be the exact same way that the Jews did their theology. Turn to Isaiah 40 through 48. The entire premise is God will perform in the future because look at what he's done in the past. They use historical data points to build trends about God in order to state attributes of God. You go from the specifics and then make generalizations based on the specifics. God's not powerful because this is just a a part of his being, and that's how we have to read it into God. No, God's powerful because he's done stuff. God's powerful because he created the world. God's powerful because he liberated Israel. That's how Jewish theology works, from the details to generalities, not from generalities to the details. You don't override the details based on what we want the generalities to be. It doesn't work like that. We don't read the Bible like that. The Bible is not written like that in mind. When anyone asks me where to start in understanding biblical theology, I always push them to this theology of the Old Testament by Walter Bergman because he hits all the highlights of what I was just talking about, except for maybe reading comprehension, setting up a basis of how to read. But he talks a lot about the specific instances, and he spends a lot of time detailing different... Uh, passages throughout the Bible and discussing what it means. And he's, he's not afraid to court controversy in reading the text. He takes the text seriously for what it says. But let's read this paragraph from him, which he talks about how Israel's theology works. At the core of Israel's theological grammar are sentences governed by strong verbs of transformation. Such sentences are so familiar to us that we might fail to notice the oddity of their grammar and therefore neglect such theological beginning point. This focus on sentences signifies that Israel is characteristically concerned with the action of God. The concrete, specific action of God and not God's character nature, being, or attributes, except as those that are evidenced in concrete actions. This focus on verbs, moreover, commits us in profound ways to a narrative portrayal of Yahweh, in which Yahweh is the one who is said to have done these deeds. So he's saying we need to take Israel's testimony about what God does, what God says, what God thinks. We need to take that seriously because They use that, those specific instances, to draw these general characteristics. Israel's theology is action-based. It's focused on Yahweh's past actions and who Yahweh is and Yahweh's relationship with Israel. It's a relational understanding. They're not concerned with Greek metaphysics. This is an entirely alien way of reading the Bible. The Bible's not written like that. The Bible's not concerned with... The metaphysics of absolute being or anything like that. It's just not Neoplatonism when you read the Bible. And it's very clear. Anyways, I've probably gone long enough, but pick up uh, Theology of the Old Testament by Walter Bergerman. That will be a good introduction uh, in lieu of a better systematic theology out there. You can skip the first part of his Theology of the Old Testament, go straight to part one where it starts going directly into the text talking about these systematic Themes, thematic elements, motifs that we find throughout the Bible, and talking about the text, the actual portrayal. He'll he'll quote long lengths of text, and he'll talk about them. He'll reference, look at this. He's quoting all these texts. He's quoting the Hebrew. You're not seeing that in the Lewis Berkhoffs of the world. You're not seeing this in the Herman Bovniks. They don't care about the text. They care about their philosophy. So we need to give priority to the text over philosophy is what we're saying here. All right, if you like this podcast, uh, go ahead and let me know in the comments. Start a thread on the God is Open Facebook group or send questions to God is Open Questions at Gmail.com. Thank you for listening.